Okay, take your Bibles with me this morning. I thought long and hard and looked at several different options is where I wanted to go uh, with a new Bible study. And I, actually, I started uh, back, I think it was 2011, 2012. Uh, we did, we were still having Wednesday. It's hard to believe that it's been, we've, we were still having Wednesday night Bible studies here on Wednesday night in 2011, 2012. And there wasn't very many. It was used basically Bart and Sally and Alb if he was in town. And uh, my son Jeremy would come before he moved to Shreveport. And uh, I taught a series on Jonah. Do you remember that? And I thought about doing Jonah. And then, I, then I, as the week wore on and I thought longer and harder about it, I thought, I, I, don't, I don't feel real comfortable with that. Uh, there's some things I need to go back and rework on that before I do that study again. So I thought, where better to go? <laughs> I, I kind of want these default people. I always fall back to that that is the greatest comfort and encouragement to me. And I'm not going to Romans, so don't think we're going back to Romans. <laughs> huh? You thought we were going to Romans? No. We, but it's, it's similar. We've taught it before. And Lord willing, if I live long enough, this won't be the last time that we teach teach it. I, I don't really, I'm not going to really cover any verses today. You'll enjoy this, Sally, because it's more of a history lesson than anything else because we have to set this up. But go ahead and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. I, I think back to when uh, I, I was in false religion and was so zealous for the religion that I was in. And I remember that um, uh, that old guy that I surrendered to the ministry under, Charles Rawson, he was coming to town and uh, was going to teach a revival on, or preach a revival on Romans 8, and he asked everybody to memorize Romans 8 if they could, and I did, Kenny, I, I memorized it. Still can remember most of it to this day. Uh, not to be outdone, Pam started memorizing Ephesians 1. Well, that kind of got under my human, human pride, and I thought, well, if she can learn Ephesians 1, I'll, I'll learn Ephesians 1 too. And I, I memorized it. And it was just it was like a dogma is what it was. It was like a, a form or a ritual. You know? And, I, and you, know, you take great pride in, look here, I can, I can quote Romans 8 to you. I can quote Ephesians chapter 1 to you. But I'm going to tell you what, the book of Ephesians is critical. I mean, all God's Word, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. But there's some books that are just doctrinally rich, that you just, you cannot and the world cannot, our friends and our family cannot, they cannot get away from what the Scriptures teach concerning this God with whom we all have to do. Ephesians is one of these books. Romans 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 is one of those books that you just, they, they have to scheme and deny and deflect to try to prove their false position and try to disprove or deny what the scriptures teach. And so when you, when you look at the book of Ephesians, everybody gets hung up on Ephesians 1, but I, you know, I've always told you this, all of the epistles, the first thing that the apostle, uh, whoever he might be, whether it was Peter or Paul or James or John, whatever, the first part of the epistle always deals with the doctrine, setting forth what God has done for his own glory through the person and work of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He has saved his people from their sin. This book, I, I, I've, I've been looking a whole lot back over in the book of Genesis. This, this book in its entirety, you know what it is? It's a book about forgiveness. You think about that. Adam deserved condemnation. But before Adam ever deserved condemnation, what was he? He was chosen by God the Father in the everlasting covenant of grace before he had done any good or any evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him that calleth. It was said unto her. And it might as well have been said concerning Adam as it was concerning Esau and Jacob. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, which they say, okay, there you go. It's, you know, all the, all the Gentile nations are going to serve it. But then we got this next caveat. As it's written, Jacob have I loved. Loved. Before he'd done any good, any evil, Esau have I hated. So the apostles or the writers of these epistles, they always set forth that truth by which we determine every ethical area of our lives. Bill Parker said it, I've repeated it, we, 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 before we ever take that first step by way of obedience, we have to be righteous. We're going to deal with that some in our Sunday worship service this morning, the message I'm going to preach to you. But when you come to this book of Ephesians, it stands in the forefront as, as one of the most concise and one of the most basic expressions of Christian doctrine. But not only Christian doctrine, Christian ethics, how we should live. I know a lot of people, they hear us and they say, well, y'all don't care how people live. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. I, I hope you care about how you live. You should. We haven't been saved by God's grace to live for ourselves. Right? You think about it. The Christian doctrine, what does it begin with? It begins with the grand truth of this. God's glory. That's where, that's where all Christian doctrine begins. How? That's the question of the ages. We're going to deal with that in the Sunday worship service this morning. How can God be just and justify the ungodly? That's the question people aren't answering today. Do you know that answer? Do you know how a holy God, who will by no means clear the guilty, do you know from God's word how he can do that? Can not clear anybody that's guilty and defiled and hell deserve it, and yet at the same time be merciful and gracious and kind and compassionate. How can he do that? That's what distinguishes our God from every other God. Who is like our God? Who's like him? And see, this is the thing. The Christian doctrine begins with this truth of God's glory, and God's glory is revealed only one place. It's not in church attendance. It's not in some great change in your life or mine. It's not in some great knowledge that you and I might possess. The glory of God's seen one place where in salvation, sure and certain, based on the accomplished death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, this is the truth of eternal salvation and final glory conditioned on the Lord Jesus Christ based on His righteousness alone, freely imputed, freely bestowed, freely given to God's elect 
and evidenced that we have that. How do, how do we know that we have the, the, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us? We believe. We believe. Belief is not the cause of the imputation of righteousness. What is belief? Belief is the evidence that we have righteousness imputed. And here's the thing. It stands in opposition to and it excludes every human performance. Now listen to this. Every human performance aimed at obtaining or maintaining salvation. Let that sink in for a minute. The doctrine of Christ stands in opposition to every human human, uh, performance and excludes human performance. Our text for this morning, not by works of righteousness which we have done. The gospel excludes it all. Now, I, I know the religious world just loses their mind over there. Salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, period. From start to finish, from alpha to omega. And it had, listen, this is the thing. No conditions on us. Do you realize that? Not one condition placed on me. Y'all, we got to have to believe. Yeah, we believe, but what do we believe? We believe there's no conditions on us. Christ fulfilled all the conditions. He did everything necessary to save us from our sins. But no, we don't stop there. That doctrine, that Christian doctrine, it's so firmly fixed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This epistle also teaches us that the Christian ethic begins with what? Obedience to God's commands motivated by the fact that what? Before I take that first step of obedience, the first step, what am I already? What are you this morning? I'm a sinner. I am too. (laughs) I I think our, our mantra ought to be, like Abraham, we believe on him who justifies, who declares righteous. Who? Not those that were previously ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. That's our, that's who and what we are by nature, even still. Because see, here's the thing. If you were truly godly, you know what you'd never do? Think about it. Oh, she's a godly woman. What do you mean she doesn't sin anymore? He's a godly man. Does he not sin anymore? That would go in absolute uh, opposition to what the Word of God teaches us. If we say we have no sin, we make God a liar and His truth not in us. And see, this is the thing. This Christian ethic that's set forth by the apostle in this epistle, it stands in opposition to, and it excludes every legal and mercenary notion of salvation and final glory conditioned on the sinner in any way, to any degree, at any time. When you sin, where do you go for comfort? How do you relieve your guilt? Because we still have guilty consciences, do we not? What do you go for relief? Well, I'll try harder. That's what our father Adam did in the garden. He thought he messed it up. And what did he think he could do? I'll fix it up. 
and that transfers to every one of his descendants. We think we've messed it up. What do we think we can do? I can go to church more. I can pray more. I can change more. I can love more. I can be more kind, more compassionate, better husband, better wife. None of that or all of that makes a difference. <laughs> the religious world, oh my God, don't say something like that. It's Christ alone. See, that's, and, and if you ever get a grip on that, that will direct every area of your life. See, that's what we have to do. We have to come to, because listen, perfect love, complete love, what does it do? It casts out fear. And as long as we don't have perfect love, and I, I mean, I'm, ta I'm talking about as long as we don't rest in Christ and His righteousness alone, you know what we're always filled with? Fear, uncertainty, worry, anxiety. I can't tell you how many times, even as a justified saint, those thoughts still run through my mind occasionally, even now. How can I be a child of God and think what I thought? You know what that is? You know what that is? Seriously. That's unbelief. That's not believing the record God gave us of His Son. That, that, son that, that reveals that old human side of us that still thinks salvation in some way, to some degree, is conditioned where? On me. And we will bear that burden, that, that old Adamic nature, until He eradicates it and removes it from us, either at our death or when our Lord Jesus Christ comes back and takes His church, His bride... To be with himself. So this epistle that we're going to begin looking at, it's one of the greatest expressions of these two basic truths. The doctrine of God in Christ and the ethics of God's children based on their understanding and knowledge of who and what they are in Christ Jesus. We Listen, we, we have to settle this. We are in Christ Jesus right now, made the righteousness of God in him. Not the righteousness of the man, and not the righteousness of the law. doesn't say we're made the righteousness of the law, does it? We're made the righteousness of God in Him, in Christ Jesus. So with that said, what's the background to this book, this epistle? Well, I did a little digging this week, and you know, it's, it's important that when we look at any book, and I've told you this for you, you've got to determine, first of all, who wrote it and who it's written to, and then you have to discover and understand the theme of why he wrote the book. And this, this book was written, we know who wrote it, the Apostle Paul wrote it. And if you do any digging and you do any studying, you'll find out that he wrote it. You know where he was at when he wrote it? I know Robert Higby would know the answer to that. <laughs> but where he, was at, he was in prison in Rome. He was in Rome. And he wrote it probably somewhere around the time... 60 to 64 A.D., in that four-year four time period. And when you think about Ephesus, Ephesus was a great city, and it's located in Asia Minor is where it's located. And don't ask me to point out Asia Minor on a map. Maybe you know where it's at. But it was, it was in the Asian part of, of that continent over there where China and Russia and all of them are at. And it was, it was a, it, when you think about it, the religious situation there in Ephesus was such that 
true Christianity, that which was called the way, it had to stand in opposition not only to the Jewish legalism that existed all throughout those regions, because remember, everywhere Paul went, whether it was Galatia, Coloss, or Ephesus, or Rome, everywhere he went, who followed him? Who came along? Even John had that issue. We was going through those verses in John. John ran into the same problem. Everywhere he went, what happened? False teachers came in. False apostles came in telling things that were contrary to the Word of God, putting men and women's hope in what they did legally to God's law and His justice. But not only did it have to stand against the Jewish legalism that existed at that time, it also had to stand in opposition to this, Greek philosophy. So you got a double-edged sword that the, the, those that are in Christ are dealing with. And here's the thing, both of them, now think about this, both of them, whether it was Greek philosophy or whether it was Jewish legalism, both of them looked on this matter of salvation as conditioned on human works in the case of the Jews or human intellect in the case of the Greeks. And what Paul said when he wrote 1 Corinthians, the Jews require a sign. The Greeks, what do they seek after? Knowledge, wisdom, right? Those that are called of God, Christ the wisdom of God and Christ the power of God. You see the difference? And also, it, it stood, it had to stand in opposition to all those mysterious religions that existed at that time. You know what stood in Ephesus? The temple of Diana, an old Greek goddess. And its inhabitants, everybody in Ephesus, almost without exception, they were given up to superstition and they were given up to idolatry. And it was in this atmosphere, you know what Paul got to do? Got to preach the gospel to them. I think that's one of my favorite stories because it's all, it's all about the same kind in that region, whether it was Ephesus or Mars Hill. Remember when he went to Mars Hill, what did he find there? He found that they, he said, you know, he looked around. They had idols, statues to every god, and they were so worried about offending one god that what did they have? They had one, and they had on that one to the unknown god. <laughs> and so Paul tells them, what if, this unknown god? Because that, that's the thing. He was unknown to them. He said, I'm going to declare him to you. And that's what he did here in Ephesus. I mean, you envision that. The first time he came to Ephesus, they had to preach the gospel to people that are in this situation. But I'll tell you what. I'll be honest with you. I would rather deal with men and women who would know absolutely nothing than deal with men and women who are religiously indoctrinated. I would. I know in, in either case, whether they're steeped in religion or have no knowledge of religion, it still takes the same wisdom and power of God to set them free. But I tell you what, the questions that men who think they know something or women who think they know something can come up with are just, you'll be, you'll be running rabbits forever trying to answer all the questions. 
I mean, here's the thing. They don't understand sin. They don't understand righteousness. And they don't understand how God dealt with these things. You'd be amazed how many people that even claim to know the name of Christ, claim to believe the gospel, somehow seem to think that the sins of immorality and ungodliness are the worst sins of all. And like I've told you for years, I have never seen one person in the 36 years since I've known the gospel have sat there and tried to tell me that their immorality and their bad behavior and their ungodliness recommends them to God. Have you? You ever seen anybody, well, I'm a homosexual and God's going to save me because I'm a homosexual or I'm, a, I'm an adulterer or I'm a liar or I'm a murderer. But on the other hand, I have encountered a plethora of men and women who have told me why they deserve heaven. I have family members, you do too, think they deserve life. Let them give you their list. They'll tell you. Paul went there to preach the gospel. What did he do when he got there? Well, I'm worried about offending these folks. No, what did he do? He stood up and preached the gospel. He didn't try to sneak in. You know, I've had people tell me that. Well, you need to try to, you need to be more subtle. The gospel ain't about subtlety. <laughs> it's truth. That's what the gospel's about. And so Paul stood up in this ungodly setting and he taught that the only way God can be glorified is one way. And salvation of sinners conditioned on a God-sent substitute. That's what he taught. You can't teach people that. What sets you free? Huh? Error don't do it. Emotion doesn't do it. I've told you this, yeah. I, if, if you could take it and, and listen, go back and watch any movie that you ever, especially any of you ladies, if you've ever, if you're into, uh, you watch that, what's that, the Hallmark Channel, which it ain't even worth watching anymore now, everything's woke now, but, you know, they have them little sentimental things on it, and, you know, and you, you get to watching it, and when they want you to be emotional, what do they do? This, this, Sweet little lullaby music comes in, right? And I've always told you this, and I'll continue to tell you as long as my mind stays right. You put on Brian's song and make me listen to it, and I'll go to crying. I didn't know Brian Piccolo. I didn't know Gail Sayers. But I could watch that whole movie. It never, if it never played the Brian song, that da-da-da-da-da, I'd never, it never affect me. Do you put that in there? And what does it do? It affects your, that side of your brain, your mind, your, your mind works off of emotions when it comes to things like music, and literature, and art. It's an emotional thing. Our emotions can be tricked. Hmm? You ever watched a scary movie? You believe in ghosts? No, I don't. There ain't no dead things walking around out here. Are you dead or you're alive? I don't believe in aliens. 
even though they're saying they give it, they're saying that they found alien remains. I don't believe there's aliens because if there's aliens, God would have told us about it in this book. There's not. But yet I tell you what, watch some of those movies and see if you don't find yourself scared to death. That's why I don't watch scary movies. I don't like that stuff. Because it makes it gets you, fills your mind. You lay there in bed at nighttime thinking about all that foolishness. And your mind convinces you it's real. And it's not. Not at all. And so we have to be careful that everything that we believe, everything we hope in is established based on scriptural fact, on truth revealed in God's word. And so he stood up and he preached to them, Christ is the representative and surety of sinners. People say, you can't say that to sinners. That's the only thing we can tell sinners. That's the only thing I've got for any sinner that will do any sinner any good. They've got to hear somehow this God who will by no means clear the guilty has cleared his people where? In Christ. You don't have to be cavalier and use big words. I tried to speak simply and understandably. God took and God views me where? In the person of my Savior my mediator, my redeemer, my substitute, my representative man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only way he ever sees me. Does he know my sins? Yes, he does. But thank God, in spite of him knowing my sins, where am I always at? In Christ Jesus. Paul taught these people that one sent of God the one sin to perform all of this was who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the God-sent Messiah. And if you read verses 1 through 14, you'd understand that's how he starts this book off. And he shows us in the first 14 verses, which we're not going to cover any of them this morning, but in the first 14 verses, he shows us the glory of God and redemption. We could spend our lives there. Should. Apostle Paul, he had visited Ephesus twice. First time he came there on his second missionary journey. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 21, when he came to Ephesus. The second time that he came there was on his third missionary journey, which that's recorded in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 41. I'd encourage you to go read that chapter because when he came there the second time, uh, the Lord did a miraculous work there and began to move among the people, calling out his sheep by name, bringing them to true faith and true repentance. And the idol makers in that city got so irate, so upset because so many people were coming to believe the gospel that they incited a riot there in Ephesus. And Paul, he had to leave Ephesus and had to travel to Macedonia to get out of here. And as a matter of fact, there was a guy I was reading back over it again this morning. There was a guy, Alexander, that believed the gospel. They they brought him out to the forefront, and they were fixing to do some bad things to that guy because of his association with the Apostle Paul. But in spite of that, you know what was there? A great and mighty church, a church of God in the middle of this place. And Paul spent a lot of time there. 
Actually, he spent almost three years there. And you know who else spent some time there? John spent some time there. The Apostle John that wrote the Gospel of John and wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, he spent some time there before they put him on Patmos in Ephesus. It was kind of like the central location. But what's so amazing about this church, Ephesus, is as great a church as it was at its beginning. You know it was a great church if you've ever read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Because this, people say, that stuff y'all believe is deep. Not to, not to those who've been given the mind to Christ. I can read Ephesians 1, 14, 1, verses 1, 1 chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Don't trip me up at all. None of it causes me any difficulty. Because everything he says here, who does it glorify? It glorifies and honors God in his entirety. Completely and totally. But to those who have not the mind of Christ, what is it? It's gibberish. God can't be this way. But what's so amazing is mighty of a church that Paul could write this kind of an epistle to these people. When you read just a few years later when John wrote the the, uh, the book of Revelations, go over and read Romans chapter 2, verse 1 through 7 and see what he says about Ephesus. How far they had fallen in a little over 40 years. But on his return trip, Paul, he was headed to Jerusalem. He called for and he asked the elders of Ephesus now to meet him in the city of Miletus, which was about 35 miles from Ephesus. Turn there with me to Acts chapter 20. And it says in verse 17, Acts 20, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church. It was meaning he had spent that three years far before with before they raised up that ride and it sent him to fly. You know, and now he's ended up back down in Miletus and he's about to go. He's going to depart. And the thing is so tragic about what's about to happen, when he gets these elders there and begins to talk to them, he tells them, y'all ain't going to see me no more. He knows that this trip where he's about to go to is not going to end well for him. He's going down to Rome, finally and ultimately. And so he sums up, look, look at what, what he says to him in verse 20. He says, and you know how I kept back nothing. What? I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul, what have you taught them publicly and from house to house? What did you write him this letter about? Here it is testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks. What did he teach them? Repentance toward God. And I like it, that word, and literally is even. Repentance toward God, even faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Not to, there's a lot of confusion in my day about what repentance is. We were raised in religion. What did, what did they tell you and me and we were in false religion? What was repentance? It was tears of remorse. It was feeling guilty. They'd, or they'd, they'd put it in this catch phrase. It's a change of direction. And in a sense, they're right. But by change of direction, what do they mean? 
that you where you used to sin, what do you now not do? You don't sin, right? And they say, if you're still sinning, you ain't repenting. John wrote, my little children, and again, I, I, I know you understand this, and thankfully it ain't going out on the Internet. It'll go out there later today or through the week, but this is just, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. You know, when, 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 we, when we think about this, this, this statement, my little children, these things write unto you that you do what? Don't sin. Right? He couldn't say anything else. I can't stand up here as a gospel preacher and you can't to your children or to your friends or family and say to them, if you're a child of God, it's okay to sin. That's not what he's saying. You can't say that. All we can do is we can, from God's word, command one another, what should we do? I mean, you, you let this one sink down into your mind. He told, I, I can't remember exactly where it was at, he, told, he wrote in one of the epistles, he said, whatever you do, whatever you think, do it all for what? For the glory of Christ. Do you do that? Everything? What, whatever you think, whatever you say, whatever you do, do it all for the glory and honor of Christ. Do it for Christ's name. Do it like he's standing right here with you. My little children, these things right on you do what? Don't sin. But if any man sins, you hear that? Literally, when you do sin, because he knew. How do we know he knew? Like the Apostle Paul, he knew that in my flesh dwells no good thing. The will's present with me, but how to perform it? It's not there. It's impossible for me to do it. But thank God he didn't stop there. Right? These things right under you. These things right into I just completely flipped out of my mind right there. Uh, he says, My little children, these things right unto you that you sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have a paraclete. We have one who stands beside us, takes up our case. And he's an advocate, and he's not an advocate with us. He's an advocate with who? With the Father. Who's our advocate? The one who's our righteousness. Jesus Christ, the righteous. What makes this advocate able and capable and willing to stand there and advocate for us? Here it is. He, this advocate, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of of the whole world. And again, we can get into a whole different discussion there, but if he's the propitiation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world, if he's satisfied law and justice for the whole world, if whole world means whole world, what can we do? We can quit. Because if he's satisfied law and justice for the whole world, the whole world's going to heaven. But again, context is everything. John is writing to who? To Jews, like Nicodemus. And just like our Lord did with Nicodemus, what did he tell Nicodemus? 
God loved who? The world. Nicodemus didn't like that. Because he knew what world meant. Or at least he thought he knew what world meant. He's like, this God loves everybody. And he was pulling out his old prejudiced mind. Same way here. He's saying he's not only because John was a Jew. And he said he's a propitiation not just for the Jews' sin, but for whose sin? The whole world. All his people. That whole world is what? It's the world of God's elect. It's the world of those that the Son was given in everlasting covenant of grace before the foundation of the world. And so Paul preaches this message of repentance toward God, even in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is repentance? Repentance is what? It's a radical change of mind, which you cannot affect. I mean, you, sir, if you know anything about the Scriptures, faith, we know it's a gift, right? You know what else is a gift? Repentance. You can't change your mind about how God saves sinners. You know, see, repentance, solitarsis. True repentance. I don't see anything, reco- I don't see anything recorded in His... His testimony written out to those at Philippi in the book of Philippians when he talks about what he formerly was as opposed to what he is now in Christ. Every time I see him give his testimony of his conversion experience in the book of Acts, I never see him talk about any tears of remorse or any change of direction in his outward character and conduct. Because I guarantee you, Paul prayed as Saul of Tarsus and as the Apostle Paul, you know what he did? He prayed. Saul of Tarsus studied the Scriptures. Paul of Tar- the Apostle Paul, what did he tell us? Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed. Saul of Tarsus, he loved his fellow men that were Jews. And after his conversion, Paul the Apostle, who did he love? He loved those whom God loved, God's people. But what kind of great change of direction? What could you look to in Paul's life and say, I know he's saved because now he prays. Well, he prayed before. I know he's saved now because he goes to church. Huh? I know he's saved because he participates in all the acts all the ceremonies and the rituals. Paul wrote to Ephesus, to those in Hebrews, we just finished it up. He said, we got an altar to eat at that they can't eat at. They're not worthy to eat there. Our altar's where? Christ. He fulfilled it all. So where's the change? Here's the change. Everything that was gained to me, everything that made other people say, well, Saul of Tarsus is a saved man. That if it caused them to be gained on what I have done, what is it? Go to, the, go to your religious friend. See if they can call their former religion dumb. Well, number one, it's not their former religion. They're still in it. That it's worthless. That it's of no value. That it has no saving ability in any of it. See, that, that's the thing. When God shows us that, we can only flee to one place. 
That's repentance. It's a radical change of mind about what removed God's wrath and gains God's favor. And the only thing it can do that is what? Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. And he called on these sinners, and that's what they were. He calls on them, and I call on you this morning to change your minds. Change your minds about God. Which I know in my mind when I make that kind of statement, people say, whoa, well, Brother Richard's become a, he's a, what is it, a free offer guy. No, I'm not a free offer. But I'm telling you, change your mind. But I know in my mind what? You can't change your mind. I can't talk you into it. I used to think I could. I, used to, I created a bunch of Calvinists when I was in lost, false religion. Had a whole herd of them. Some of them heard a deer. I had a, I had a herd of guys out at that, that plant while I was robbing for my employer running around with that King James miniature full King James Version Bible in my pocket. I had a whole herd of guys following me around that sounded like a bunch of parrots repeating what I said and what I had taught them. And it was dung. It was refuge. It was dead works. It was fruit unto death. It was of no value. But I could talk them into it. I talk you into being a Calvinist. I, I could put so much evidence on you from the Scriptures. I convince you Calvinism's right and Arminianism is wrong. I can convince you that. But you know what happened? That don't stick. But if the Lord convinces you that salvation is in, through, and by Christ alone, based on His blood and His righteousness, can't no person take that away from you. And listen to me, you will not compromise it for your nearest, dearest friend or family member. I, I know people say all the time, that's just too much for us to bear. All, everybody sits in Grace Baptist. We all have people that we loved, still love if they're alive. But our Lord is clear, if any man love Father, mother, brother, sister, more than me. What? You finish the phrase. Okay. It's not about... I, I, I love my granddaughter to death. I mean, I, I'm just enamored with the only one I got. Probably the only one I ever will have. I'm enamored with her. And I want more than anything... To, to see her in my lifetime before I leave this planet, come believe this gospel. But I tell you what, I don't want her saved in a way that would compromise God's glory and honor as a just God and a Savior. Just, it's not, I pray not my will, thy will be done. If, he's, if she's one of his elect, he'll bring her to see this thing. And if he doesn't, Lord God, give me the grace to bow to it. I raised two boys was worried about them their whole lives when they was growing up, if they'd ever come to believe the gospel. And you just got kids, you deal with it just like I did. You got a brother that I love as much as you love your, your family members. Talked with him on the phone the other day. It amazes me we can talk about everything in the world except the only thing that matters. Cannot talk about Christ. This Christ. We can talk about his, but I don't want to talk about his. And the same way with my, my wife's family. I, I love them to death. But I tell you what, not so much that I would compromise 
the glory of God and salvation to sinners in order to get along with them. Push comes to shove, they're gone. And they are. Uh, because I'm not compromising. And we just won't do so. So he, he and exhorted these elders, and we'll close with this this morning, and we'll come back and we'll pick up with the opening remarks in verses 1 and 2 next week. He exhorted these elders to be faithful, to feed the church of God, that Christ, God had, listen, he's told them in that Acts 20 that God had purchased that church with his own blood. And he said, after I depart, after I go away, of your own selves, there are men going to arise in the church to draw away people from the truth. And he warned them about it. And it's in this, this document, this this letter that he wrote that he shines forth to these these elders and these teachers at this church and these believers, you and me included, what our doctrine is and what our ethics are. And we'll come back next week and we'll pick up with that. You're dismissed the worship hour.